Hospitals in Focus from the Federation of American Hospitals. Here's your host, Chip Kahn. In many ways, 2022 is starting off just like 2021. COVID cases are surging. Many parts of our lives are virtual again or definitely masked. And the Congress is gridlocked. Also, like last year, health is front and center in Washington. From the White House's ongoing management of the COVID pandemic to the proposed expansion of the ACA and the Build Back Better Act, to the administration's regulatory action on surprise bill, to the Supreme Court considering vaccine mandates and the CMS 340B payment adjustment. Today, we take a deep dive into these and other key issues. We kick off this season of Hospitals in Focus with an update episode, a double header that gives us perspective from both sides of the policy and political spectrum. Like last year around this time, I am speaking with influential Washington health policy veterans, Chris Jennings and Doug Badger. From opposite sides of the aisle, each will reflect on the future with the viewpoint from previously holding significant posts on both Capitol Hill and in the White House. I am bringing them back to discuss what difference a year makes and to share their thoughts on what we can expect in 2022. We start with Chris Jennings, who is president and founder of Jennings Policy Strategies. Thank you so much for being with us today, Chris. It's a pleasure to have you have me back, Chip. I didn't know after last time you'd have me. Of course. You know, actually, that was one of our best listened to selections last year was uh, you and Doug, sort of the Chris and Doug show. It was really very popular. And so we're glad to have you back, and I look forward to our discussion. But to get started, uh, as we are recording, we are amid an Omicron wave while facing significant supply shortages with testing, uh, hospital staff, and other medical staff and therapeutics. The end of COVID is difficult to fathom now. How would you assess the first year of the Biden administration's leadership on the COVID challenge? And where do you think the public perception is of how they've handled the crisis? Well, Chip, I think it's mixed, certainly, um, by any definition. It is clear that there is a significant difference from last year, and that is we've had significant distribution of and take up of the vaccine. And that has placed us in a much better position going to this round of COVID and the Omicron variant of COVID. But there's no doubt that there are shortcomings. And and in particular, I think everyone was disappointed that we were going to go into a round two and round three of COVID through the Delta and the Omicron variant. And as a consequence, I think people are just so tired of this. Um, They feel that they had all hoped, including the president, that we'd be much further along. I do think, though, in addition to the vaccines being substantially um, infused into our nation's citizens, uh, we have very significant take-up rates, and we are therefore in a much better position facing Omicron. Uh, We also have a situation where we have other therapeutics that are now coming online that help us in terms of the treatment. Where I think most people feel we've fallen short is on the availability of and production availability and distribution of tests. And that has created real problems. I think most people felt that we would never have the set type of volume of uh, this variant that, that we are now going through. And I am pleased that the administration is aggressively working to produce, contract out, and get distributed these tests. And I think that will make a significant difference going on or going forward. But I think the bottom line is the public is tired of this, as we all are. Chris, the, the buck stops at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue on, on so many issues. And we're all hoping uh, for their leadership in this meeting, this wave of Omicron. But what do you think the administration's COVID strategy will be going forward, looking maybe beyond Omicron? And what is your view on expecting COVID as an epidemic to become uh, less of a threat to our future, maybe more of an endemic than a pandemic? Yes, I think that we are uh, transitioning into an endemic. And I think after we get to the Omicron variant, we may see that more and more. But I think 
if past is prologue, we can never be particularly confident. The one thing that we do need to do is make sure that we're better positioned in the future for any such pandemic. And I think we've shifted, or we need to shift from the acute interventions, which we are presently in the middle of, to longer-term strategies that ensure that we have adequate production and availability of PPE, of testing, of all the therapeutics and vaccines that we will need going forward, which suggests that we still need to have significant investments in our public health infrastructure, which have exposed many, many vulnerabilities of our healthcare system. And I do think in this particular case, Chip, uh, this is an area where there is openness to bipartisan approaches. I've, I've been encouraged by the Senate Health Committee and the leadership of Chairman Murray and Senator Burr, and I think there'll be more of that to deal with this going forward, which is very different than, say, for example, the coverage and access issues. Well, that's encouraging, Chris. Let's turn to uh, the Build Back Better, the BBB legislation. Uh, of course, the legislation is up in the air. We, we don't know um, whether or not it, it will be enacted. Democrats consider it transformative. Could you review really quickly uh, from your perspective what the highlights of the health care components are and what promise it holds for ACA? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I, I, I think there are what I call the core four issues that are part of this package that have substantial and broad-based support, particularly with the healthcare stakeholder community. And one thing before I start with this, Chip, is to say and to remind people that some of that agenda had already been enactment in the American Rescue Package for a short period of time. The expansion of subsidies for the Affordable Care Act to make premiums much more affordable and some incentives to states, the Medicaid program to expand as well, um, as well as incentives for states to do more in home and community-based care. But that, that is just short-term policy. And if we don't uh, do the longer-term policies, then we're going to see sort of a affordability cliff in the Affordable Care Act and an access cliff uh, in, in Medicaid. And my view is that, that that's why failure really isn't an option for the Democratic Party. They, they do have to pass the four core, which are Affordable Care Act, increase in subsidies to ensure that premiums are affordable all across the board of all income populations, the investment in the and access to the marketplace for the 12 Medicaid states that cover millions of people in poverty who do not have access to affordable coverage, the prescription drug cost containment policy and the uh, coverage enhancements within the Medicare program, both for prescription drugs and hearing, and last, the investment uh, of home and community-based services through the Medicaid program. There's $150 billion. Interestingly, and I think why I'm a little bit more optimistic about the healthcare policies is almost all these provisions have broad-based healthcare stakeholder support. And in addition, Senator Manchin's counteroffer to the White House seems to have embraced virtually all of those policies, which, which of course is not the case in many other elements of his counteroffer. So healthcare is actually positioned quite well, assuming we do get an agreement. Do you have any sense for what the timing would be? I mean, when will we know whether this is a go or not in terms of making these advancements in terms of the uh, aspirations of ACA particularly? Well, I think we're going to have to go through the democracy and voting debate that we're going to be seeing over the next two weeks or so. And then I believe we're going to be reengaging on Build Back Better. I, I, I personally think that it gets harder later in the year to see closure on a policy. You know how that is. If you get closer and closer to an election, it becomes harder and harder. My view is that by the first end of the first quarter through March, I think we better be pretty close to being done. And I think that uh, people are going to have to accept compromises, but I think it's still a very viable uh, you know, option for the Democrats to pursue. And as I say, if they fail to do so, they'll have very little to market for their reelection campaign in 2022. You know, Chris, this time last year, we were discussing how the ACA had, in a sense, survived four years of intentional neglect or worse. What do you think is the primary action the administration has taken uh, over the past many months to turn this around? Do you think they have been successful? And is there more that they can do to promote and build 
on the ACA within existing authorities without having to go back uh, to the Congress? Well, Chip, I think they've been very aggressive on outreach and marketing and targeting populations very creatively. And that has, that has helped contribute to significant enrollment. But that has been supplemented by the American Rescue Package policies that increase subsidies to make those premiums more affordable all the way up the income scale. And so I believe that needs to be sustained. And to your point, it needs to be sustained legislatively. They're also are doing, they're being very careful about how they deal with insurance reforms and policies that might lead to options provided to enrollees that provide substandard um, benefit coverage. And so on all three of those fronts, they're being very aggressive, and I think they're being quite successful. They probably will not be as successful at maintaining the um, improvements enrollment that they've seen if we don't sustain the premium subsidies. And as I say, that does require legislation. The president and all of his administration has clearly set improving uh, equity as as a, a top agenda item, and health is one of the focus areas in that. How, how do you think that will play out in the upcoming year? There's been a lot of discussion uh, over the last 12 months, but it sort of hasn't hit its formative stage in health. What do you think we'll see? Well, I think there's to your point, Chip, there's been an administrative commitment, administration-wide commitment to equity and disparity issues, which really is a part of every process of every policy development um, dynamic that exists within the administration. They no longer are you know, throwing it to a minority affairs office and just thinking about you know, siloing this issue, but they're integrating it in every policy decision that they make, whether that's delivery reform, or coverage, or insurance reform, or public health. And to me, that's a really important change. Um, you'll note that the CMS administrator and the secretary have, have really required that as part of their processing. And I would point out, of course, that the so-called Medicaid coverage gap policy that is incorporated into the Build Back Better legislation is probably amongst the most significant and measurable and accountable measures to address equity and disparities that any policy the Congress can consider includes. And so I'm very, very encouraged by that. I'm very encouraged that Senator Manchin is supportive of that, as well as the Affordable Care Act enhancements. And that suggests that that might be sustained through the upcoming negotiations. You know, it seems like we're always in an election cycle. And as this year begins, you know, we're so many months away from the midterms. How do you think healthcare? You've made you've alluded to it in an earlier answer, but how do you think healthcare will play out in the election? And is there healthcare other than COVID that will have any resonance in the campaigns? Yes, I think that healthcare. People get confused about healthcare uh, and its polling. It always ranks usually close to number two, and of course, the economy is always number one. And the reason why it's always close to number two or number two is because it is such a big part of people's perception of economic risk. And and that comes down to their ability to have affordable health care, which means both that they have affordable premiums, but also they have meaningful benefits so they don't have higher and higher out-of-pocket costs that limits their ability to access affordable health care. So to me... That is the direction that that the Democrats have and will continue to pursue to address this issue. And if we're really talking about what is the driver of health care um, and the, poli- the politics of health care is one, yes, moderating, mitigating and, and, and moving beyond COVID is certainly number one. But right behind that is finding better ways to ensure more affordable, less complex health care for the American public. I guess to wear my hospital hat for a moment, uh, it seemed to us that the administration uh, has given a, a bit of a regulatory edge to manage care over providers in the implementation of surprise bill legislation, as well as the Medicare Advantage regulatory action that we've seen. What's behind this? And in 2022, is it possible for providers uh, to make up any ground with the administration? 
Well, you know, I think, Chip, everything is in the eye of the beholder, um, but I, uh, I guess I would say a couple things about your question. First, I don't believe that this administration or any Democratic administration is, you know, totally beholden to the managed care or insurance industry. And I'm sure the insurance industry wouldn't wouldn't think that they are. But um, and on surprise medical billing, that is an issue, of course, that has resonance not just to health plans, but to businesses and labor and consumer groups who are generally favorably disposed to the administration approach here. Having said, to your point, I believe that there is a very strong case to be made to greater managed care scrutiny uh, under contracts with the Medicare program, particularly as it relates to reliable payments to providers, as it relates to a question of uh, how much we're paying them and what we're getting out of it, uh, as it relates to upcoding issues, uh, as it relates to quality issues. I think you're going to find a much more aggressive administration in ensuring greater accountability within that industry. So as I say, you're in it for the long haul, and I have every confidence that you will win as much, if not more, than you'll lose. Well, obviously, every community needs its hospitals and needs access uh, to health care. So hopefully the insurance companies won't go too far uh, to get in the way of that. Moving on, though, Medicare obviously is is always important and close to the center stage. But we haven't heard much about the Medicare Trust Fund in discussions in Washington recently, uh, despite the fact that we're not very far off from going off a, a fiscal cliff uh, with the trust fund. Do you think it'll be part of the 2022 discussions? Or if not, uh, when do you think it'll get on the policymaker radar screen? Well, to your point, Chip, I'm I was a little bit surprised last year it didn't get a little bit more attention because the insolvency date is shorter than all but one other year over the last 30 years. And this year it may be tied with the lowest number of years to insolvency, which of course was utilized as a rationale for significant Medicare reimbursement changes in the 90s that we debated over. And I I could see something like that happen, but probably not in this election cycle. I think you've succeeded uh, in a number of fronts at, one, having a sympathy about hospitals in general, about everything they're going through right now, which I think is appropriate. Second, if you really look at Medicare growth rates, they're not growing significantly more. Th- and in fact, their their payment rates are significantly lower than the private sector. So it's hard to suggest that there's a lot of room for deeper cuts within the Medicare program, particularly as it relates to hospitals. And the reason why, of course, hospitals are relevant to the hospital insurance trust fund is that's where a significant portion of the, med- of, the of hospitals receive their reimbursement. What this does raise to me, though, is that I don't think it's a sustainable dynamic. I think that uh, politicians of both parties will be focusing on this more and more over time. And I think if I may be so bold as to suggest that the hospital community should not only talk about how where they are in terms of reimbursement rates and their lack of ability to sustain many more changes that reduce their reimbursement rates, but also the need to have additional revenues to sustain and support and strengthen the Medicare trust fund. There is no way that we can have the aging of the baby boom population and do it through sheer efficiencies and reimbursement reductions. We're going to have to have some more revenue. And yes, that probably means something called taxes, but that will be necessary to avoid cuts or reductions in reimbursement if one of the priorities is going to be extending the trust fund. Well, I think at least in the short term, we've really got to worry about the stresses on hospitals, the workforce stresses and uh, other stresses but clearly in the long term, this is going to have to be dealt with. I must admit, I was with a Republican uh, senator uh, the other day, and he even admitted that part of the solution to the trust fund problem probably includes uh, some revenues. And when we get there, I don't see how you do it without some combination of, of policies that may include fiscal policy. We talked a little bit about the midterms and, and clearly there's not a lot of expectation unless BBB uh, gets done in terms of what can happen legislatively. Uh, what do you think, assuming not much happens, 
in this election year. Uh, what, what, do you, what do you think the administration is likely to do in the health policy area going forward? We talked a little bit about COVID, but in other areas as, as, as they steer health policy uh, into 2022 and, and beyond. Well, of course, you mentioned something that's very important, Chip, which was the workforce demands right now. You're seeing states and the feds starting to begin to respond to this shortage. The question is whether their interventions will have an immediate impact. I'm not sure. But one thing that we do know is that this is a longer-term challenge because we do have the aging of the baby boomers, and it will require more, particularly nursing and, and less skilled healthcare professionals. And I would argue, certainly a primary care focus with the physician community that we need to do a much better job on. So uh, for all those reasons, I think the healthcare workforce are things that can be considered. It's important to note that in ARPA, which was, of course, the rescue plan, there was some dollars there, and there's significant dollars in the Build Back Better legislation for more resourcing for workforce, which I think is something that gets lost on a lot of people. But if we really want to address some of the challenges that you face, we're going to have to take this on quite, quite seriously. And, you know, I worry that if we fail to do so, hospitals are going to be in such a difficult position. And and that will have longer term cost problems because the the payment just to find uh, well-trained nurses is going to be just very, very unaffordable, which will, of course, raise premiums and out-of-pocket costs as well. So it's in all of our interest to really seriously address this workforce issue. Chris, you know, it's clear from our, our discussion that uh, the great political divide dictates so much uh, in our society and, and, and the running of our, our government today. You know, one of the manifestations of it is it, it seems to me there's much more litigiousness uh, and many policies are ending up at the Supreme Court when in the past uh, laws would have passed and people would have implemented them and everyone would have uh, lived by the law. What do you think about this trend and do you think it's going to continue? Chip, I think your observation is right. I think it's caused by a number of different things. Uh, first, of course, is the polarization of the parties but also the lack of ability of Congress to, number one, pass legislation. But even when they pass legislation, they provide very broad authority to the secretaries of whomever, whether it's a Republican or Democratic administration, interpreting the law. And that gives broad authority to them to make decisions that perhaps the Congress or the stakeholders who are affected by them would disagree with. And that has created, therefore, a subsequent invitation, if you will, for those to that lay question to those interpretations to take the administrations to court. And we've seen that in past administrations and this administration. I would also say the other, the other problem of Congress really failing to do its oversight role and its clear legislative role is that does provide more flexibility for the executive branch to be more aggressive in this area. So this has an enormous implications downstream, but absolutely impacts the litigation risk um, issues for the administration and the opportunities for stakeholders to lay question to their interpretations. What, what you're describing, uh, Chris, from my, my perspective is really manifest in healthcare particularly. And there we see this issue of you know, government power and then government being questioned. Um, we have before the Supreme Court, American Hospital Association's cases on 340B. There's the Empire case. There's the vaccine mandate cases, uh, which are going to go through the courts, uh, but, but are getting Supreme Court review. And then there's even the abortion issue. But let me leave that separate for a moment, although sort of wrap everything together in, in a prognostication uh, or ask for a prognostication on your part as to with this trend and with the court seemingly going uh, more conservative, in some ways, you could almost argue this is the court that Trump built. Uh, where do you see things going on these cases generally? And um, is it going to change the dynamic between uh, the power of the government if the court rules that, that Chevron and, and, and flexibility on the government's part is not allowed? Well, 
I think it's quite clear that the power has shifted to the executive branch and then to the Supreme Court and away from the Congress. What I think might happen is Congress, particularly Democrats in the Congress, will have to be much more careful about how they draft language. They're going to have to be more explicit, and they're going to also have to look at past interpretations of the Supreme Court about how they might review and adjudicate policies that the Congress passes. And I can tell you right now that is part of the process that Congress is considering, even for the most recent uh, Build Back Better legislation that is pending before the Congress. I think, secondly, there is a general sense that uh, there you know, in healthcare in particular, the sensitivity of the political sensitivity, the ideological differences between the two parties on healthcare, particularly as it relates to coverage and access and insurance reforms, will be litigated more and more frequently. And and as you point out, also the role of government and how intrusive it can be in order to provide and ensure safety. Uh, We've seen even today Uh, the Supreme Court ruling in a divided way about what those roles are. One, stopping uh, the application of vaccine uh, mandate to employers, but allowing for it to be open to uh, their contracts under the Medicare and Medicaid program. And so I don't think there'll be a one-size-fits-all approach that we'll see out of the Supreme Court, but clearly they're going to be very sensitive to how language is drafted and how it is interpreted by the executive branch. Chris, uh, this has just been great. Thank you so much uh, for joining me today and being part of this podcast. Uh, Where can people go to learn more about your work? Well, they can can go into my website, which is Jennings Policy Strategies, and they'll be able to find it. Um, I just hope that, that when I hear this downstream, that Doug will be in total agreement with everything that I say. Well, we always like the yin and the yang of American politics and particularly health policy. So I'm sure you're going to enjoy whatever he has to say. So with that, thank you, Chris. My pleasure. Thank you, Chip. Now from the perspective of the loyal opposition, Doug Badger, a senior fellow with the Galen Institute, and a visiting fellow in domestic policy studies with the Heritage Foundation. So glad to have you with us today, Doug. Thank you for having me, Chip. Doug, uh, I think you qualify as a Washington old hand. Not much in healthcare policy has occurred during your career that you haven't been directly involved in or at least provided wise counsel to policymakers on. Would you tell us a little about yourself and those experiences uh, that might give our audience some perspective on your background? Well, to start with uh, ancient times, Chimp and I were colleagues, both uh, Chip with the Ways and Means Committee, and uh, I was with the Senate Republican Policy Committee and later uh, at the uh, System Majority Leader Office. And we worked on things like HIPAA. We worked on the um, uh, Balanced Budget uh, Act of, of 1997 and so forth. I later joined the uh, White House at the National Economic Council as an advisor to President George W. Bush, where uh, I represented the White House in negotiations over the Medicare Modernization Act, which created the Medicare Part D program, uh, health savings accounts, and and made various other changes to the program. Um, I've also been a partner at Washington Council Ernst & Young on the lobbying side, uh, and uh, also at the Nichols Group, where our group represented, among other Healthcare clients, uh, some hospital systems, and uh, as well as uh, as well as the American Hospital Association. If I'm allowed to mention that on this podcast, Chip, I'm not. Yes, sure. thank you, Doug, and we really do look <laughs> forward to your perspective. So let's get let's get to it. So, how do you rate the Biden administration's response to COVID, and uh, what would you have done differently, and where do you think they should make mid-course corrections? Well, I think by its own standard, of course, the, the administration has performed poorly. Uh, as a candidate, President Biden repeatedly said he was going to shut down the virus and repeatedly accused President Trump of being responsible for all of the COVID-related deaths. Well, of course, the two biggest waves of infection have occurred, including the one we're in right now, occurred during the Biden presidency. And more people have died with COVID on his watch than uh, than on President Trump's. But, but campaign per- verbally aside, 
when you ask me what I would have done differently, from the beginning, uh, the president remained in campaign mode. It was everything Trump did on this was wrong. Everything I do is is right. And instead of characterizing the vaccine efforts, which were already underway when he took office, as building upon, improving, expanding, any number of verbs would have done on what his predecessor had done, uh, initiated with Operation Warp Speed, the idea was nothing was happening till I was president, and then I came along with this uh, great vaccine. He spent the first six months taking credit for declining cases, which I think, as we all know now, had more to do with the trajectory of the uh, of the pathogen than with any policies uh, of of the White House. And then it, since then, he spent it uh, blaming people, uh, blaming other people for its resurgence. He was recently again calling this a, a pandemic of, of of the unvaccinated. More recently, things have gotten more erratic. We've had discordant uh, policies on on boosters, confusing messages on on masking, on how long you should isolate with the virus. And of course, in year three of the pandemic we're about to enter, we still have a shortage of of tests. So I wouldn't hold the president uh, accountable, certainly, for not shutting down the virus. And, And nor would I have expected him to be able to heal our political divisions. That's just no, uh, uh, not in the cards for any office holder, but he could have taken a less politicized and strident view toward the pandemic. And, and I, I do wish he would do that. I do wish he would adjust his tone a little bit uh, because we're not going to persuade people who are unvaccinated by blaming them for all of the ills of the world. Before we leave this, Doug, it just you as a you know policy expert, do you think uh, we can figure out a way to integrate the the COVID into our way of life if it's not going to just go away? We're going to have to, right? You know, there's one view and, and you know, everybody's sort of making this up regardless of their uh, level of expertise that somehow or other Omicron will be this uh, quick spike and wave and then we will we'll have acquired antibodies that perhaps the, the vaccines haven't imparted. And maybe then this goes on to become more of a background uh, of virus. But whatever happens, you can't distort social life, economic life indefinitely or interminably. You have to learn to to find ways to coexist with the virus. And how we do that, given our social, cultural, and political divisions, of course, is going to be very is going to be very, very challenging. But we absolutely have to do it. Doug, uh, you have critiqued over time the design of the ACA insurance exchanges. Uh, what is your view of the current effect of the enhanced subsidies for exchange coverage included in recent legislation as well as being embedded in the House-passed version of the Build Back Better Act? Well, the problem is it, it fails to address the core problems with the ACA. Look, anybody who's enrolled in these policies complains about them. They complain because the premiums are high, because the cost sharing is burdensome, because the networks are so narrow. And in many of these plans, if you go out of network, you're basically uninsured. So instead of addressing those problems, the the idea is that, well, we'll just enlarge the subsidies. And by the way, we'll make people making who, who earn 200 or 300,000 a year, we'll make them eligible for subsidies because nobody wants to pay full price for an undesirable uh, a product. Now, the subsidy expansion, as CBO has looked at it, the Congressional Budget Office and others, really doesn't affect materially the number of uninsured. Basically, we're just paying bigger subsidies to insurance companies on behalf of people who already have uh, insurance. Uh, some of them are paying full freight now. They might be able to get a discount because, because of the subsidies. But we're, we're increasing payments by tens of billions of dollars to insurers and increasing their profits. These companies are making bigger margins now on their ACA book of business than they are on their uh, group uh, health plans. And meanwhile, the federal government right in 2020 supplied 74 percent of their premium revenue. That's going to be higher with the expanded subsidies. Now, 
For conservatives, corporate profits and executive compensation aren't troubling in themselves. But what's concerning is this partnership between government and large corporations whose profit depends on government support of low quality coverage, basically high deductible Medicaid. We we really do need to do better than that. We need to do more to give consumers a range of options, including uh, low-income consumers. We shouldn't be just enrolling them in low-bid Medicaid MCOs. Uh, we, we should be opening other markets to them. There are much better ways to spend the federal dollars subsidizing uh, health insurance than, than we're doing right now. And unfortunately, BBB simply throws more federal money after some very inferior insurance products. I asked you last year, and I, I'd like to ask again, this is really a political question because you've given your economic uh, critique, but Republicans have consistently opposed the ACA framework that we've just spoken about. But uh, you don't hear discussion right now from them about repeal and replace. I guess, I mean, do we think conservatives have at least crossed the Rubicon and accepted that ACA is here to stay? And if so, what are the implications of that politically and for the sustainability of the ACA framework that you've just described issues with? Yeah, I would distinguish, Chip, between conservatives outside Congress who are advancing real alternatives to the ACA and Republicans in Congress who, as you and I very well know, are more comfortable in criticizing Democrats than in advancing their own health reform proposals. Uh, Republicans in Congress are much more comfortable talking about taxes, trade, national defense, national security, uh, inflation, and other sorts of things than they are about health care. And at the same time, on the outside, the medical industry, insurance companies, hospitals, doctors, and others have sort of made their peace with the ACA. Uh, that industry supported, by and large, supported its passage in 2010, opposed its repeal in 2017 supported its temporary expansion last year and is today pushing to make that expansion more permanent in the uh, Build Back Better Act. So and Republicans in Congress, can, can, I think, can see the writing on the wall uh, that if they challenge uh, the status quo in any meaningful way, they're going to face fairly considerable headwinds. Talking about those Republicans a little bit more, as you say, uh, they're going to focus primarily on inflation and broader opposition to aspects of the BBB. Do you think they'll talk about health at all in this developing political year? And if so, what aspects of health care uh, do you think they'll talk about? Honestly, I do think they're going to talk probably very little about health care. I think the number one topic, uh, unless, of course, things change, it's a long way, 10 months or so until the election. But if things remain relatively unchanged, I think uh, inflation is going to be the issue that's going to be most salient for voters, and it's going to be the one that Republicans are more likely to talk about. I think to some extent, too, you'll see some discussion of, of foreign policy and military policy. What irked people about the Afghanistan withdrawal was not that we were ending a war. I don't think anybody, I shouldn't say anybody, but there are very few people who wanted us to continue uh, to be involved in that uh, in, in that war, but how it occurred. And when you look at that, along with things like increasing uh, aggression on the part of Russia, on the part of China, the, Iran, and uh, and some of the other bad actors, and the fact that the U.S. can't seem to formulate any effective response to any of these it's it's going to be an issue that I do think Republicans are going to touch on. Look, we as the American people are of two minds. We don't want to get involved in foreign wars, but we also don't want the United States to be disrespected. And right now, the feeling is starting to settle in that goes back to ancient times in the 1970s when we had inflation on one side and, and we seem to be uh, getting uh, humiliated on the world stage uh, on the other that is a potent political brew, and I do think that's where Republicans are going to be putting their emphasis. You know, one other aspect of the great sort of political divide uh, is the current contentiousness that, you know, leads to legal action and the fact that 
uh, so many policies are heading their way up through the court system, the Supreme Court. Uh, do you see this trend continuing? And what do you think the implications uh, of it are? It, it's a disturbing trend, I think. And, and the reason I say that is because Congress has turned into a, a, a bystander. It's almost as though uh, members care more about how many Twitter followers they have and how many retweets they got this morning uh, than they do about the business of legislating. And so a lot of that has gotten outsourced to the executive branch. That's a real distortion of our uh, constitutional order, where uh, it's our elected representatives who are supposed to be making the hard decisions and sorting out the controversial issues. And it's the executive branch that are, uh, that's there to carry out the laws that, that Congress passes uh, increasingly. And this is not something that's unique to the Biden administration. It goes back uh, certainly throughout this century, but it seems to be with increasing frequency, which is that the executive branch agencies, bureaucracies and political appointees are taking over the legislative function uh, because Congress has, has abdicated on that. I don't know how you change that. Congress doesn't want to sully itself with uh, difficult issues, and they certainly don't want to compromise because neither base understands compromise. But Congress needs to be more assertive, or we're going to see more of this stuff of executive branch agencies writing rules that clearly exceed their, their legal authority, and then those uh, the courts having to sort out what goes through and, and, and what is to be struck down. Boy, this tension that you're talking about now is really reflected uh, in the court action, the question of the role of government, of, of the legislative branch and the executive branch. We see this in health care uh, that affects uh, hospitals directly. Now at the Supreme Court, we have uh, American Hospital Association's 340B case. We have the Empire case. We have vaccine mandates being issues before the court. Prognosticating is dangerous here, but on these issues that touch legal principles like Chevron and others in terms of the extent of power an executive can exercise, what do you think will be the potential outcome in this newly conservative court of these sort of fundamental questions about governing, even if we have a Congress that is, you know, on a lunch break? <laughs> It um, Well, you know, uh, a year ago or even six months ago, I would have said that the court would serve as a backstop and say, as they did, for example, with the CDC eviction moratorium, look, you don't have legal authority, CDC, based on some vague statutory wording to assert this power. And by the way, that was a power that was originally asserted in the Trump administration and then revived in the during the Biden administration. But I, I'm not so sure that's true. I am not a seasoned court observer. I've looked more at what Congress and the executive branch do. But it strikes me that the chief justice is always looking for some way to find a, uh, a pathway. He can steer the court that sort of splits the difference uh, and doesn't antagonize uh, one side or the other too much. And he sees that, I believe, as preserving uh, the, the, the court's authority, the, the, the esteem in which uh, uh, people hold the, the Supreme Court. But the problem is it involves uh, now the judicial branch in a form of legislating to the extent that they are greenlighting uh, agency actions that clearly are not authorized by law. You talked a little earlier about the Republican or more conservative healthcare thinkers as you know well as uh, obviously we have republican policymakers but if if the republicans uh take one or two of the chambers in the upcoming uh, midterm elections these thinkers you know yourself included have have a lot been brewing a lot of ideas uh what kind of health policy do you think a, a republican house or a republican congress if they took the senate too uh would be likely to pursue uh next year well, I would like to say that they would pick up and try to do a better job for the, the American people than, than the ACA with using these funds, deploying these funds a little bit differently, and with broadening options that are available to consumers. 
But the reality is that the Congress that gets sworn in a year from now, in January 2023, is going to be focused on November 2024, which is when the next presidential election occurs. So my suspicion is that they will be looking for issues that um, where they can score political points against um, against Democrats. And there are any number of those and force President Biden to veto legislation that might be popular. I don't know that that's possible. Uh, there's very much of that possible in healthcare. One thing I would say, though, is that there is some area, narrow as it may be, of bipartisan consensus in healthcare, not always congenial to hospitals, I, I, I might say, but you know, the, the Medicare Part D program, which I played a role in, in writing, clearly has gone off the, the deep end because some of these very expensive drugs are shifting costs away from the uh, prescription drug plans and the pharmaceutical companies and onto the government. And MedPAC and other uh, outside observers have suggested a restructuring of the Medicare benefits to shift the cost of the most expensive drugs back onto the industry in the form of discounts and onto the the, uh, prescription drug plans. That's got bipartisan support. Version of that is included in the House Pass BBB Act. That's something that if you took it out of that context, combined it with some other things where pharmaceutical companies exploit loopholes in the law to stymie uh, competition from generics, that kind of thing could pass. And as you know, uh, there's a good deal of bipartisan consensus on hospital prices, particularly price transparency, site of service, and, and, and a variety of other issues where Congress has sort of stood back and let the administration take the lead. But Congress could fashion bipartisan legislation that's, that's thoughtful, that is based on input from uh, the, the affected players, and, and maybe do some real good for Americans. Again, I'm not dreaming. I don't have stars in my eyes uh, about the possibility of bipartisan consensus, but there is room for that in the healthcare area. You know, an issue that is obviously related to what you're bringing up now, uh, that the politicians, at least at this point, have been either reticent or willing to uh, let slide, um, is the date of insolvency for the Medicare trust fund. Do you think anyone will seriously discuss policy to uh, address this in the near term? And and what direction would you like this to go? Well, uh, we'll commiserate like two old men, Chip. Uh, the last time the, the Social Security, the Medicare trustees forecast that insolvency was five years out was 1997. And as you recall, the, the, the Congress, a Republican Congress, responded with the Balanced Budget Act of 1997, which, among other things, addressed the looming insolvency of uh, Medicare. This year, or last year, I should say, in 2021, when the, when the trustees said, well, you know, five years from now, uh, Medicare is unable to pay full hospital benefits, it was greeted with a bipartisan yawn. Republicans may have made some noise about it, but not very much. And Democrats were talking about how they were going to vastly increase Medicare spending and increase the the scope of the program. I don't know how you function in a world where, you know, the basic responsibilities of Congress uh, don't even seem to arouse any any meaningful debate, much less any sort of effort to to move forward. But honestly, uh, again, uh, when we're here a year from now, uh, 2023, I don't see that Congress uh, wanting to take that on in a bipartisan way. I hope they will. Uh, but I think more likely they're going to be edging up to the drop dead date in, in 2025 and being and trying to pass some sort of emergency legislation that they that they slap together in, in order to keep the uh, the benefits flowing. Uh, sort of to close out, we touched on the role that health might play on the Republican side, but sort of thinking more broadly, do you think that healthcare will play a role in the fall elections, uh, at least beyond COVID? Obviously, there'll be a lot of discussion of, of COVID, but beyond COVID, do you think it, it, it has a role or uh, we've sort of, uh, we're, we're going to see the other issues that you talked about? 
Well, I'm the world's worst political prognosticator. So people can easily discount what I'm going to say. And and it's certainly hard to know in January, as I mentioned earlier, what will matter to voters in November. Obviously, as you say, if COVID is still raising havoc uh, next fall, it's certainly going to be a tough issue for President Biden and for his party. But I'm going to be a little more optimistic and say we've returned to some state of normalcy by then. But, but I do think at that point, economic issues are going to dominate. As unpredictable as the course of the pandemic has been, the economy does look more predictable. And that means inflation will likely still be with us and potentially unpleasant economic consequences that would accompany any move by the Fed, Fed to curb inflation through uh, monetary tightening. Healthcare is always going to matter to voters. But my suspicion is that this time around, it will be a a second tier issue unless the economy dramatically improves. Doug, we really so appreciate you spending time with us and sharing your perspective and expertise. Uh, Where can people go to learn more about the work you've been doing? Well, the two organizations I'm affiliated with, uh, Heritage Foundation, is at heritage.org. And the other where I hold a senior fellowship is with the Galen, G-A-L-E-N Institute, and that's galen.org. Great. Well, I'm sure our audience will go, and I hope that they'll uh, look for your very learned writings, particularly on the ACA and insurance. So with that, such a pleasure to spend the afternoon with you. Thanks, Chip. Always great to talk. Great. listening to Hospitals in Focus from the Federation of American Hospitals. Learn more at FAH.org. Follow the Federation on social media at FAH Hospitals and follow Chip at Chip Con. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Hospitals in Focus. Join us next time for more in-depth conversations with healthcare leaders. Music